get started. The longer we go, the more uncomfortable the introverts get. Who, who else is an introvert in those like open greeting times give you a rash? Yeah, it's a lot of us. Just consider it our act of hospitality for the extroverts in the room, for everybody else. So good morning, everyone. We are, this summer we have been, reading and studying in the book of Numbers all summer long. And I am aware that that is a sentence which sounds in no way interesting. But hopefully it has been interesting. It's been interesting to me, hopefully to you. Um, the past couple of weeks, we've been reading about these testings. If you remember, two weeks ago, the first test was for all of the 12 tribes. Hundreds of thousands of people camped by tribe, arranged around the tent of meeting in a big circle. And they sent out spies in, to spy out the land. And um, they came back and the people were, um, it was, this is a test, by the way, that corresponds to Adam and Eve's testing by the serpent. And it's similar. The giant plays the part of the serpent and tempts them. And they're kind of blinded by the testimony of the giants. And so they're afraid to go into the land. And they end up, God says, you're going to have to wander here for 40 years until that whole generation is gone and their children will enter the land. That's the first test. It's kind of big, big fail. The second test was for the tribe of Levi. So they went from all 12 down to just this bunch who are just not out with the camps, but right around the tabernacle. They had been set apart. Like they didn't count as one of the 12 tribes. They were, they were a tribe, but not one of the 12 and set apart to exercise spiritual leadership. And they were camped right around the tabernacle, like near to God's presence, which was a blessing, but also kind of dangerous um, to be that close. It was, I've heard it compared to like workers in a nuclear power plant who are working in close proximity to all that radioactive material that holds incredible power, but it's dangerous for them. So they wear protective clothing. They follow careful procedures. This is what it's like around the Mishkan, the tent of meeting. To live so close to so much power was dangerous. So they, the priests wore special clothing. They had special procedures to keep them safe. And their test came in the form of a sibling rivalry. This corresponded to Cain and Abel. Korah's rebellion comes. He rebels against Moses and Aaron. And this insurrection breaks out and starts leading people astray and, and almost fractures the whole thing. But then the, the ground swallows them up, if you remember, in this act of decreation. That was the second test, kind of a fail. So we went from all 12 to just the special tribe of Levites. And then now in the third test, we come down to just one. It's, it's the testing of Moses himself. And um, in this story, it's kind of weird. As chapter 20 begins, we've jumped way ahead in time. Like Exodus, Leviticus, most of Numbers to this point, have, has, it's really been about the first couple of years of their life. And here in chapter 20, it just jumps forward 40 years to the end of that wilderness time. And um, just kind of skips ahead like they hit fast forward. And it tells us, you know, Moses, Miriam, Aaron, they're, they're aging. In fact, we're told that it begins, Miriam has just died. In a few verses, Aaron will die. And so it's kind of the last of this wilderness generation. They're beginning to die off. And Moses is leading now mostly their children and grandchildren, a new generation that for the most part has only ever known life in the wilderness. They don't remember Egypt that well. Each day they'd wake up, gather manna, 
If the cloud was stationary, they'd stay put. If the cloud was on the move, they'd pack things up and go. And Miriam, if you remember from, I don't know, several weeks ago, many weeks ago, Miriam was in charge of water. That's kind of her, her role for the people. And our text begins by saying, Miriam died and was buried there. And now there was no water for the community. And they assembled against Moses and Aaron. So, so this is happening. The test comes in the form of a water crisis, which is, you know, in the desert, an existential threat. You know, you can, you can go a week or so without food, but you cannot go very long without water. Things start dying. So a water crisis in the desert is, is an existential threat to the people of God. And they're scared. And they're demanding solutions from their leaders. And Moses and Aaron get spooked. And it says they run off to the tabernacle and fall on their faces. And, and Yahweh comes to them and gives them particular instructions on what to do. Verse 8 says, take the staff, you and your brother Aaron, assemble the congregation, and speak to the rock before their eyes to yield its water. Thus you shall bring water out of the rock for them. Thus you shall provide drink for the congregation and their livestock. So if, if you look at this, there are kind of three particular actions, kind of uh, and a fourth, but the three are uh, take the staff, you and your brother, assemble the congregation, and then it says, speak to the rock before their eyes, so it will yield its, its water. This is what he's supposed to do, and this will produce water for the people. But something that Moses does here is offensive to God, and it's so bad that God punishes Moses by saying, you can't enter into the promised land, this thing you've been headed toward the whole time. Seems kind of puzzling, when you read this, just on a plain reading of the text, it's almost impossible to find the crime for which this could be the punishment. God's reaction here seems sort of out of proportion. Like, what did Moses do that was so terrible? His first action is to ka et, um, kwa et ha mate. Um, mate is staff in, in Hebrew. So take the staff. Of course, Moses' staff, like, if you've seen the Disney version of this story, it plays a pretty big role, right? Um, it's made several appearances, even had some lines of dialogue in the film, um, not so much in scripture. Um, but symbolically, it has been really, really, the staff is really important. Um, its first appearance was at the burning bush. Remember when Moses called, or when God called to Moses, said, I want you to deliver my people, and Moses is like, why are you asking me? I am a nobody. And, and God says, what's in your hand? And it was this staff. It's its first, first moment. And he's like, throw the staff on the ground. It turns into a snake. Remember that? And he says, pick it up. And he picks it up and turns back into his staff. And this is all kind of this sign to say, look, you won't be alone. I'll, I'll be with you, supporting you. And in the ancient world, these mate, the, the staff, was kind of a universally um, recognized symbol. Like in, in its simplest form, it's just a walking stick. You ever um, go on a hike and pick up some walking stick, like in the first five minutes, anybody do that? And then by the end, this thing is your buddy. It's like your pal and you, it's kind of like that. But also in the ancient world, the staff was mostly used for hitting things. That's what it, it was, a, it was a rudimentary weapon found almost in every culture. It's cheap, easy to carry, easy to use. And some of them became, you know, over time in some cultures, very elaborate 
weapons, like the Native American staff. This is one of them. These things were deadly. Um, in some martial arts, there's the bow staff. Remember Napoleon Dynamite had bow staff skills? Anyone? <laughs> I love this church. I was like, I, I wrote that and I was like, nobody's going to get that joke. But you are my people, you get this joke. <laughs> the staff was really the most, most common weapon in the ancient world, which is probably how it, it eventually became a symbol of like ruling power. The leader carries a staff. Whoever has the strongest army, you know, ruled the world. So the, the staff also came to um, denote military um, command. And eventually, royalty, kings and queens, they, they wear crowns and hold scepters or staffs. The leader's power um, in, sometimes was thought to be, in a sense, contained by the staff itself. Like it, They thought the staff almost had magical powers. In fact, to this day, a magical staff is sort of a literary trope. You see this in like Loki's staff or Gandalf's staff. Or in mythology, like Zeus had his lightning bolt, that was his staff. Poseidon had the trident. Hades had the bident. The Pharaoh's staff um, had a, a cobra on its head. This was, you know, this staff had a bite. This staff actually loomed large in the Hebrew imagination, right? The, the people of God took many beatings from a staff like this. And so this staff kind of symbolizes a particular type of authority and power in the world, the power to punish and dominate, the power of violence and war. In other words, the staff in general is a symbol of empire. The staff symbolizes the one who hits, who strikes in order to have his way. I don't know if you know this, but the word fascist comes from the Latin fascis. It means a bunch of staffs bundled together. That's where we get the word. Like, government by the staff leads with perfect logic to fascism. So when Moses is contending with Pharaoh and his empire, his staff actually became really important. Same with, same with Aaron. You remember that? That was the one that transformed into a serpent, and Pharaoh's sorcerers like, we know how to do that trick. So they turned theirs into a serpent too, and then his serpent staffs snaky thing, ate their serpent staff snaky thing, right? Just like gobbled them, gobbled them up. And um, kind of, this is, this is the thing that's at the war that's playing out with their staffs. And his staff would turn the Nile to blood. It would initiate many of the plagues in Europe. Moses lifted up his staff to part the Red Sea. And, and of course, these, these are all moments in which they were confronting the ferocious power of empire. In the book of Exodus, Moses first used his staff to, to get water from a rock in Exodus 17. But in that case, God had told Moses, take in your hand the staff, strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So God's command there was strike the rock. Of course, that was a full 40 years ago during the early stages of the wilderness journey with a generation who's really their only model for power was Pharaoh and his staff in Egypt. And the staff of Moses helped him escape the world's greatest empire. 
The very last time we've seen Moses' staff in this story was um, in the, the battle of Rephidim. The, this is the battle where um, Moses told Joshua, I'm going to go up on the hillside, you stay down here and fight, and uh, I'll raise my staff into the air. But in the text, it says he doesn't even use the staff. He, he only raises his, his hands to God in prayer. When his hands are raised, they're winning the war, but he gets, his hands get tired when he lowers them. They start losing the war, so his friends come along and, and prop, prop them up. And that was the last time Moses' staff appears in the story until our story for today. And so Moses really should remember that in the heat of battle, during the existential crisis of war, it was not his staff that won the day, won the victory. His staff was actually set aside. It was his lifting of hands in in prayer. I mean, the, the significance of the last time he used that same staff was that he didn't use it. Almost just like you don't need it. But it really feels like Moses has almost forgotten about this. And after that day, Moses, his staff isn't mentioned again until our story for today. Stored away in the tabernacle. Nobody's seen it for 40 years. Until this water crisis. This existential threat. And the people confront him. They run to the tent. God tells Moses and Aaron, go into the Mishkan and get the staff. And the rabbis say that what's going on here is that this is a test for Moses. So we've had a test for the 12 tribes with the spies, and they failed a test for the Levites um, with Kor's rebellion, and they failed. And now it's a test for Moses. And we're kind of set up to think, Moses, he's got this. He'll be fine. And God's instructions are, take the staff, assemble the congregation, speak to the rock before their eyes, order it to yield its water, and then water the people. God says nothing about striking the rock this time. And this phrase in there is kind of peculiar. Look at it. It says, um, speak to the rock before their eyes. It's a really odd thing to say. Why do you speak to a rock? Like, rocks can't understand you. They have no ears. They have no brains. Speak to the rock. And it says, speak before their eyes. Shouldn't it be before their ears so they can they can hear. It's, it's strange. It seems to be indicating his, like his actions are going to speak louder than his words. They'll hold symbolic meaning for how to proceed when you face an existential threat. Take the staff, God says. Assemble the congregation. Speak to the rock. And then, shikitha, um, it means uh, give, give you to drink or give them to drink. Moses is supposed to personally serve them water, like take care of them, give each of them a drink. And and in the language, there's no like punitive overtones, nothing that might cause the the people to feel guilty or Moses to be angry. It's it's more a connotation of tenderness, Water, water the flock, right? They're supposed to feel nurtured and cared for by Moses. That's what's in the language. And so Moses starts in, he does everything God says at first, gets the rod, gathers the people, but then things get weird. He speaks, but not to the rock. He speaks to the people, and he's scolding them, speaking harshly to them. He says, listen, you rebels. Must we really bring you water out of this rock? He really seems kind of angry, and his anger actually feels a little out of place. It's kind of like a get off my lawn moment here. Like, 
okay boomer, right? This water crisis is an existential threat. Like, of course, they're worried and going to appeal to their leaders, but Moses comes down hard on them right here. He calls them rebels. He's condescending to them. He's insulting them. It's a far cry from tenderness and, and nurturing. And we're told, then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. Remember, God has said nothing about hitting the rock with the staff. Certainly not anything about hitting it twice. So this is, Moses um, has not done what Moses was asked to do. And the directions were clear. He's not confused about the procedure. Get the staff, gather the people, speak to the rock, water your flock. And instead he spoke to the people, scolding them, and struck the rock twice in sort of this symbolic appeal to force or violence. And when he does, water comes gushing forth out of the rock. Not just mayim, water, but mayim rabim, water abundantly, which sounds like success, right? Not failure. Which is why we're totally unprepared for what happens next. God turns to Moses and says, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. It's this kind of record scratch moment in the story. Moses is indicted on two charges. God says, you didn't, hey, imantham, you didn't um, trust me, you didn't believe in me, but it's the kind of trust that evokes faith or trust in, in others. And you didn't honor me as holy, kadesh, in the sight of the Israelites, didn't display my holiness, you displayed something else. And, and so the shock of the story is, it seems like things have ended happily here. The water crisis, at least, is over. The ex- existential threat has been averted. But then God indicts Moses, saying, you didn't have faith in me. Only, like, the kind of faith that evokes faith in others. You didn't have that. You didn't honor me in your actions, in your words. And the children of Israel were watching your every move. And so you, you, can't, you can't lead them into the promised land. And, and at first blush, we, like we have to say, this seems a little bit nitpicky by God. Why so touchy about this? Like he's disqualified from leading them to promised land for what seems like kind of a minor mistake. Like it's not like he went out and dug a well. It's like, I'll do this myself. Why does this matter so much? I mean, maybe he's a little grumpy, but that's just a pretty devastating punishment. And it makes us wonder what God is really like. If God is just like touchy, oversensitive, irascible, I mean, do we all need to be walking on eggshells with this God, waiting on God to pounce on us for like the smallest little mistake? Well, the rabbis say no. They say that's not it at all. Like that's not what's happening in the story. And they have some ideas Um, and some really great arguments about what exactly Moses has done wrong to offend God here. Rashi, one of um, the famous uh, medieval rabbis, says the problem was Moses hit the rock instead of speaking to it. That was his sin. Um, The Ramban, or, or Maimonides, he says the problem was Moses spoke, but not to the rock. He spoke to the people angrily. And uh, I kind of think both of these are right. 
he did, both of these are part of the problem. And it taken together, like the, um, these words spoken in anger, striking the rock instead of speaking to it, all of this has Moses really for the first time misinterpreting God to the people, misrepresenting God to the children of Israel. So he's misleading them as their leader. He's failed at his primary task. It's almost like he's like too old and grumpy um, and too hooked on the staff, on sheer force, too rough on this new generation. And so his time of leadership is drawing to an end. He was the, the leader they needed for the past 40 years, but not the leader they need for entering the land. And in the past, there was this pattern that always played out or seemed to in the life of Moses. Like God would get angry for something the children of Israel did, and Moses would mediate between the two parties. So he'd go to the people and say, God is angry. Go to God and say, the people say we're sorry. Go back to the people and say, God um, says you're forgiven. And all along, his actions were revealing the character of God, that God's being, that God's um, way of being and God's essence was about love and forgiveness and reconciliation and persevering with people, with humanity. But here, it's almost like Moses' imagination. It's just been trapped in this kind of old cycle. And so he doesn't, his actions don't reveal God's character. His words don't reflect who God is. And he can't see the children of Israel as kind of innocent, as having a genuine concern about an existential threat in a way that's appropriate in the eyes of God. And so he takes it upon himself to express a divine anger that, in a sense, was not there. God is actually not angry. God's quite forgiving and tender toward the people. So Moses is mediating anger and destruction. That's not what God was after for them, especially not moving forward. And the presence of the staff is kind of the key to understanding the story, I think, because Moses was, in a sense, reverting to leadership by the staff. Leadership that was maybe, in a sense, too similar to the empires of the world. Authority rooted in force and punishment and fear and violence. You know, the one who holds the staff commands the armies and maybe even the seas. And that staff has, you know, has been with Moses for a long, long time. It's done some amazing things that staff has. It called forth plagues. It parted the sea. I mean, that staff was a game-time player. It was clutch. But the staff is not the right model for leadership in the next season of their life. Moses is leading with anger right here. And the power of the staff, and he's meeting the existential crisis here with this righteous fury at a time when it seems like something else was required. And this something else is actually named by Yahweh in the story. Um, they did Bartem, and you shall speak. It's a moment of, I think, profound revelation. This names for the people of God how to meet the existential crisis in such a way that you inspire faith both for yourself, but especially in others, as they begin to interact with the other nations of the world. You meet those crises not with, with the staff of power to punish, to dominate, not through intimidation or violence or war, but rather God says, Vedibartem, you shall 
you shall speak. So speaking is presented as an alternative to war and violence and power and fear. God's like a mom with kids wrestling, fighting, going, use your words, use your words. You shall speak, not strike. You, you shall speak and learn to maybe listen. You shall speak, and this will help you find the path to peace. The path to peace, in a sense, is filled with talking, with conversation. God isn't looking for a leader like Pharaoh who can wield the staff. God wants a leader who's sensitive to God's spirit, who can discern God's leading and faithfully act faithfully according to God's will, largely in, in the way they speak. And Moses has been a good leader for a long time, but things have changed. That whole generation is dying off. It's going to take a new kind of leader to take the children of Israel where God's leading them so they can be a people who image God among the nations. And what God seems to be looking for here is a human partner. Because God is, is always, it seems, acting in the world through human agents. You know this, right? Like, almost always. Um, most of the time in the story of God, God's presence and power are mediated by human agents. Visible kind of evidence of the invisible God. And the way those agents go about things will reflect on how people see that invisible God, how they imagine this God. And what our text for today tells us is that even Moses struggles to do this faithfully. I mean, Moses knew what he was supposed to do. He's not confused about the procedure here, but he just had to get this dig in and air his grievances. He knew he was wrong, and he didn't care. And this is, this, this is our problem. This is always humanity's problem. And what God is always looking for is a human partner whose character and will have been so shaped by their struggles in the wilderness that they don't do this kind of thing because their heart is tender. And so they image God in whatever situation they find themselves in because over time their character and their will have been shaped and formed by um, experience in the wilderness to reflect the divine character and will. God's way of being has kind of become their way of being. It's always what God has been after. And going all the way back to the beginning of the Torah, this is you know, why God called out of all humanity one family and tried to get them to do it. And then out of that one family, one tribe, and out of one tribe, one clan, and out of one clan, three siblings. You've got Moses and Aaron and Miriam. And out of those three siblings, one leader, Moses, spent tons of time with him, gave all this instruction, gave him all this special access to the divine presence. And even Moses fails a test. Just like Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, just like the children of Israel, just like all of us, really, in a sense. And so I don't think that this story is teaching about a God who's irascible and that we should all be walking on eggshells. If we, you know, mess up the slightest little bit, God's going to get you. It's a, really just about the realities of the human condition. That even when God selects a special human partner, even then it seems to fall apart. 
And that failure has consequences that ripple out into the world that reflect actually on God and the way the world sees God. And so there's a sense, I think, in which reading this, we're all supposed to ask the question or at least wonder, where is the human partner that will do God's will, that will reflect God's character and lead to wholeness and flourishing for themselves and for all of humanity. And um, really the only completion to this story for us as Christians is that our belief is that Jesus was that human partner. And this is really how Jesus presents himself in the Gospels and how the Gospels present him as um, Israel's representative, really in all humanity's representative as a, a, you could say, a faithful leader who never turns to the staff, who speaks tenderly about God, who speaks about grace and friendship and love and forgiveness. Christ is the royal priesthood talked about in, in the prophets, the one who is faithful where everyone else has failed and faltered. And through his birth and his life and his teaching, his ministry, and then through his death and resurrection and ascension, we have this pattern that we can follow, this person that we can emulate. And, and then through the spirit of Christ that is within us, and whenever two or three are gathered in his name, like in this way that he's shown us doing life in his way, we can all become, in a sense, those human partners that God is looking for. Not that we're perfect or, or never mess things up, but that we can, especially together, like I have low confidence in any individual person doing this. I have high confidence in us together doing this. We can discern the will of the Father because Jesus has shown us how and empowered us to do it through the Spirit. And so this is what we try to do. We, we follow Christ. And if we do this, we start to really kind of taste wholeness and flourishing. And then if we persevere in that, we begin to extend this to the rest of the, of the world. And we can do this in a sense where Moses couldn't for that one reason, because we have, we have Christ to look at who has revealed, shown us the way and empowered us through the Spirit to be faithful to it. And so this is our task, really, to embody a God who has this really soft heart toward humanity, a God who would rather have us use our words than our weapons, to talk, to listen, to try to find purpose and meaning. Moses' failure, in a sense, is a productive failure because it points us toward Christ's success. And our calling is, in a sense, to try to learn how to embody Christ's success, to be his hands and feet in the world, often through our words and our conversations. And Christ ends up being the leader or, or the king, and in a sense, the, the mediator who doesn't rule by the staff like the empires of the world. When you think about his, the royal physical stuff around Christ, so if, if he's a king, his throne is 
a Roman cross. His crown, a crown of thorns. His hands, not gripping like a staff, a royal scepter, like, like Pharaoh or Caesar. His hands outstretched in forgiveness, even of those who are killing him. And the gospel is, if we live like this, like faithfully, if we live like this, without violence, speaking forgiveness, with open conversations about how to be reconciled to each other, if we, if we live like this at the heart of our lives, then, then wholeness will start to happen to us. Flourishing will start to happen to us. And it will start to extend through us into the rest of the world. And for this, words, not the staff, are the most powerful weapons for peace. Let's pray. God, we think about how much, how often we use power. We power up. We use forcefulness. We lead through strength. And we think of your command, speak, you know, use your words. And I pray that we would be the kind of people who um, learn to speak like Jesus spoke and who learn to listen. People who are strong enough to be vulnerable and weak. For this is what the world needs. This is how the kingdom comes. As we think about how you want to have human partners, we want so much to be that in the world. And we just confess it's hard to see sometimes, and there's always some staff to grab hold of. So we need you to show us how to do this. We need each other. We pray that Redemption Church would be the kind of place where when people come and see us and speak with us, they sense who you are in a way that's true and real. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I invite you to stand, please, and we're going to receive communion. The way we do this at Redemption is um, we'll just release row by row. And um, you come forward and you'll be offered a plate of bread and a cup. You just take a piece of the bread and dip it into the cup and then receive it. And as you do this, they'll say, remember the body and blood of Christ. And you can um, just respond by saying, um, I will remember, or however you feel comfortable responding. We do this because on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and a cup and had all of his, his followers that were with him share in this the same you know one piece of bread this one cup and um, he said that this bread is like my body and this cup is like my my blood my life and he said whenever you gather 
eat this bread, drink this cup, like take my life into your life and be made out of the stuff I'm made out of. And then go out into the world and bear my image, you know, speak like I speak. Be salt and light and let the world taste and see somehow the reality of God. So this is, this is why we receive communion and why we do it every week. And it's also why we don't put any limits. Like anybody who calls on the name of Christ can join us at the table. So if you would join me and let's pray a blessing on the elements. Oh God, we do ask you to bless the bread and the cup. May it be to us a means of your grace a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive you into our bodies, um, will you come and live inside us? Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light and let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?